A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the White Lotus Podcast, where the lore hounds your guides to your Italian dream vacation. I'm the Queen of Sicily. And I'm David, and this is your coverage of White Lotus Season 2, Episode 5, That's Amore. Each episode, we're going to be taking a closer look at different themes, references, and history relevant to the episodes. Today, we're going to be discussing Puccini's opera, Madame Butterfly, as well as Mimetic Theory. Then we'll move into a scene-by-scene breakdown of the episode, followed by our Deadpool conversations and listener feedback. A reminder, you can send us feedback to whitelotus at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those emails in the next episode. We'd love to hear your hot takes, thoughts, and predictions. If you want to talk White Lotus with us sooner, join us over at the Bald Move Discord, link in the show notes and at baldmove.com. We have a well-moderated server and a dedicated channel set up for the White Lotus. Each episode is siloed, so you can join the conversations at any time without fear of spoilers. A quick reminder about our Patreon. If you like what we're doing and you want to support us directly, check out patreon.com slash thelorehounds. For just $3 per month, you get ad-free versions, early access, and more. Of course, you can get our ad-supported podcast on our Lorehounds feed anytime by searching for us on your podcast application of choice. Lastly, we're going to be talking about some mature and sensitive topics, and we're going to try and do that respectfully. Any feedback is always appreciated at whitelotus at thelorehounds.com. All right, David, let's head into the hotel lobby before our recap. Let's tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay, that's amore. That was an awesome song. Mia rocked it. Would you hate me if I said I, I didn't like her performance that much? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> the musician snob in you? I just, I don't think her voice fits that style of music that well. I think she's much, sure. I, I can hear that she's a folk singer, you know? And I yeah, say this as yeah. someone who used to sing a lot of folk, is mm-hmm. uh, she's singing it really straight. And this is this is the kind of thing where you got to have a, a little bit of opera juge with you. Yeah, in uh, in an interview that she did, um, she's she talked about how she's actually a folk singer herself. Right. Uh, as well as being an actress. And so it's cool that they didn't have to, you know, do any uh, voiceover dubbing and stuff like that, that they could actually use her God-given talents in, uh, um, in the really very dramatic and cool way. Great way right. to weave it into the story, too. More weaving. Yeah. Yeah. No, I liked, uh, I liked having her play. Again, mm-hmm. I, just, I just thought that, like, it was not fitting with her voice. But that's okay, because it was still good for the story. 
What else did you think about? Did how was your how's your overall thoughts on the episode? Well, David, there's a dump truck carrying a pallet behind my house <laughs> with all the internet points I've earned this You episode. cleaned up. You were in a little bit of a hole and today you are the winner winner chicken dinner. So I went back mm-hmm. and I listened to just the part where I made my claims last episode. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh you doubted me, David. I, I did. I heard the doubt in your voice. Deeply, deeply skeptical. So let's inventory your internet points here. You you were right about Jack to a degree. I was. I was. Yeah. First of all, Jack is a sex worker. As I said, that yeah. Albie and Portia were both going to bed with sex workers that night, and I was correct. Yep. Yep. Plus one for my internet points and plus one for my gay mafia theory. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some stuff going down there. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I I'm not gonna claim victory on the gay mafia thing yet, but it's it's building up. I'm gonna give you internet points too for Dominic. Okay. Because he is not a sex addict. All right. He may have some compulsion issues, but he the the there's no evidence of addictive behavior there. Right. He wouldn't have been able to go this long, I don't think. I mean he's no he's all around here. He's just he's just kind of a toxic guy. Yep, yep. He's just got, yeah, he, he had a pattern of behavior that he was used to, and he's probably got, you know, some stress and, and you know, uh, other ways to try to relieve uh, and or live out uh, what he thinks are, is the right way to go about things. But he's clearly stopped, so it's not addiction. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think he's just kind of, a, kind of a piece of shit to his wife and, uh, and his family. <laughs> And now he's even exposed his son to risk because right. well, he let's has get it. Let's save it. Save it. Save brought it, save her it. into here. I will not save it. I have to yell about it right now. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I'll save it. But okay. It's very interesting seeing this generational stuff. I love this mm-hmm. framing. Like I said at the top of the season, that it, this framing of having these three generations of men is just brilliant. Uh, yep. It gets better every week. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, I'm just looking forward to it. It was a delightful episode overall. I mean, it yeah. was, it made me laugh so many times. Tanya was at, uh, at the top of her game in this episode. I mean, the, between the queen of Sicily thing, between these are <laughs> high-end gays we have here. Uh, are you sure you have something cute? Just a million great lines she had. Uh, yeah. the, the comic relief could not be better. And then you had unhinged Aubrey Plaza. Which was just amazing. She's back yeah. in April Ludgate mode from Parks and Rec, uh, uh-huh. and and just Portia and Lucia. Which I did lose some internet points on this one because I said uh, I think Portia is going to tell Albie that Lucia is a sex worker. Completely wrong on that. Lucia is like, yeah, right, where's yeah. my money? Right. Um, but you know what? I'll, <laughs> I'll forfeit a few bucks because I I made out big this week. Um, overall, just this season just keeps getting better, and I can't wait to see how it turns out. Yeah. What do you think, David? I totally agree. I was chuckling all the way through this episode. There were so many little great scenes and, and little uh, back and forth between the characters that just had me uh, in stitches all the way through. At the same time, it was a very dark episode, and there were some sinister, sinister things going on. And I'm really looking forward. I have no idea how somebody like Mike White, Mike White can construct an episode or a season of television in this way. The threads and the setups and, you know, who's pushing whom and who's pulling whom and who's set up with who. It uh, really is a, a really 
brilliant combination of circumstances, and I'm enjoying the heck out of it. The continuing on with the great scene transitions, a lot of wave action and water action, I love all that stuff. And the use of music in this episode was pretty wild. There's um, at least five songs by a particular Italian singer, uh, Fabrizio DeAndre, and then there's a couple of others not including Mia. So like, there were some really specific creative choices that went into this episode that really made it a, a very entertaining episode of television to watch. Very cool. I think Mike White is just extremely well-read, and we should all stop podcasting and read some books because he seems to be pulling from throughout world cultures and throughout literature and opera and everything. If this was a, a, a writer's room, I would understand the depth and breadth of the research that has to go on to fill this episode with all these cool musical and uh, art uh, and other historical facts. So I don't know if he's got a research team that's bringing him stuff and he's sort of compiling it all, or is he putting it out and then people are going out and fact-checking and pulling it in. I don't know how his process is, but it feels like there's like 50 people working on the writing team of this thing, but it's like one guy credited, right? Well, something that's crazy is we see all these announcements that uh, these 2022 shows aren't coming back until 2024. Mike mm -hmm. White did this in a year, whereas... Yes. You know, these other shows are, are struggling to come back now, given this show has a lot less to do in post because it's all, you know, in the real world. But yeah, still, I mean, the planning that goes into this, the plotting is just insane. And this was something that was not even a planned season. The, the White Lotus season one was supposed right. to be a single <laughs> limited series. And then they asked him to, to come back for a second season. And now they're planning season three, which is great. But it's just crazy how fast this guy works and how well he works. It's not, this clearly wasn't a let me grab some more money from the stack because season one was well received and I'll phone in season two. This was, I want to tell a completely different story with the same format. Uh, you know, we've been covering Andor, and so I've been listening to some Tony Gilroy uh, interviews about his process and how they sweat the details in their writer's room and music and production and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, wow, I, I mean, they really went hard for a, a, in Andor and, and how they went about their process. And then like, you know, if, if the studio just calls up Mike White and says, hey, Mike, you got a season two in you? And he's like, yeah, I think I got something. Scribble, scribble, scribble. Here you go. And then this is what <laughs> we're seeing. I'm like, wow, I can't wait to see what Mike White's future is going to be. And especially, you know, I mean, I'm absolutely interested in seeing future White Lotus um, episodes, but I would love to see him roll out into some other topics because his quirky sense of humor, his dark sense of humor is really interesting. And I really like the way that he tells his stories. Are we finally going to get you to watch School of Rock? Uh, we might have to. We might have to. Maybe put it's it on my holiday. It's a good movie, man. I'm telling you. Right in, white lotus at thelorehands.com. <laughs> I've got a, um, some time at the end of the month, so maybe I'll throw that onto my, uh, my watch list. Sounds good. All right, so why don't we head a little deeper into the lobby and go into our research topics. Now, David, I know you have something on Cameron's podcast listening. <laughs> yeah, obviously he read an article or he listened to a, uh, one of those um, Blinkist or something like oh, that. Maybe yeah, he listened yeah, yeah. to a Blinkist uh, um, 
thing on Medicare. This is not an ad for Blinkist. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) we are not paid by them. So, and I wasn't familiar with memetic theory, so I just did a quick internet search. And what I found was that this um, theory comes from a French historian, literary critic, and philosopher by the name of René Girard, uh, who passed away in 2015. And His theories all around this are based in the human act of imitation and modeling. So both of us being parents, we know that modeling is a big deal in in how you parent, right? You want to model the behavior that your your kids um, that you want your kids to to do. And you know, we talk a lot about monkey see, monkey do kind of stuff, how you know, mammals and primates and in specific mirror each other's behavior and model things. That's how we teach a lot of things. This is how mammals, you know, parent per, ma- parents of mammals teach their young how to hunt or how to gather food or to use, you know, specific uh, tools or techniques. And so this is all based in, you know, deeply in, in mammalian behavior. So with uh, Girard's uh, theory, uh, he actually this is his specific um, theory here. He says, man, man is the creature who does not know what to desire, and he turns to others in order to make up his mind. We desire what others desire because we imitate their desires. So who had the first desire, though? Well, yeah, there you go. It's a, it's a very good question. A lot of chicken and egg going on. Exactly. He also went on to say that this can oftentimes lead to rivalry. And we can see that certainly with Cameron and Ethan here. And then at, le- at the level of society, it can actually be a destructive force and uh, problematic. And so that um, one of the things that he posited, this is part of his theory, is, is that we create communal scapegoats so that we can all pile on to one thing. Oh, yeah, I really hate, you know, hate that sports team or, you know, I hate the the freeway, you know, I hate the freeway system that runs through the middle of our town or, you know, whatever. We have common things that we can complain about so that we can somehow manage this competition that naturally arises from having shared desires. So it's an interesting theory. I haven't come across it before, but some of it makes sense to me. And um, I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear if anybody else has a take on it. Ethan is the kind of guy who reads a Malcolm Gladwell book once a year and then tells everyone <laughs> why what they're doing has to do with the Malcolm Gladwell book for that next year. He's a tech bro, right? That's what they do. Uh, but yeah, no, that's a super interesting theory. I, okay. I don't know if I agree with it, but it's certainly explaining a lot about how Ethan and Cameron feel about each other, at least. Well, and I could... I could go, I mean, you know, there, there's lots of theories on, on human development and, and society. So, you know, multiple things can be true. I think certainly in this case, we can see Cameron's, the way that Cameron tries to dominate and use his privilege and power. And, you know, who knows what his m- deeper motivations are for that but that he does try to dominate and control others through these kinds of behaviors, it makes sense that if Ethan had, was sweet on somebody or was into something, Cameron would, would get in on it as a way to um, uh, you know, feel like he's part of it and maybe even 
oh, you know, and, and to prove to himself how good he is and, and how, you know, right it is that he is the alpha in any given situation. Yeah, no, I mean, they they seeded that in a previous episode with the jet skiing, but yeah. they're really nailing it down now. I mean, I think that this is a little bit of what uh, Aaron likes to call the three-step Martin reveal of, first, I'm going to show you, then I'm going to tell you, um, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to make it explicit. But right. this is definitely being made clear here, and I think that we're going to just see this get worse as it goes on. So you did some research on Madame Butterfly. Research. I read the Wikipedia article. Um, <laughs> that's research. I, it's considered research. <laughs> if you want to call it that. Um, <laughs> we, read, we, we read Wikipedia, so you don't have to. It's true. So the plot of this play is really interesting because it is very strongly hinting at the Tanya Portia storyline, I think. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, how so? How so? Okay, so it starts off, basically, there's this Japanese woman named Butterfly, mm-hmm. and there's a U.S. soldier named Pinkerton, mm-hmm. which, by the way, that's why the Weezer album is named Pinkerton. Oh, interesting. And he goes over to Japan, and he marries her out of convenience. Right. She gets pregnant, but he goes away back to America. Ooh, can I just, that reminds me of the Testa di Moro. But in that story, she cut his head off before he could go away. Anyway, carry on. Well, so... Her assistant, her maid, actually, uh-huh. keeps telling her he's not coming back. He's not coming back. It's time to move on. And she goes, mm-hmm. no, he's coming back. She decorates the whole house. She gets it ready for him. She has the baby. And finally, he does come back with an American wife. Oh, God. <laughs> I've never seen Madame Butterfly. So, yeah, I, this is good. I didn't know the plot. So, Pinkerton and his wife come back to Japan. And they basically say, look, he wants a, he wants a divorce from you because the, J- the Japanese laws will la- allow it. And uh, we'll raise the kid. And she Mm, says, mm -hmm. fine, you can raise the kid, but I want to have a face-to-face meeting with him one more time. And before Mm -hmm. he can get there, she covers her kid's eyes with with something. And then she goes behind the curtain and she commits seppuku, which is a Japanese ritual suicide. Right. Look at it this way. First of all, Greg just went back to America. Yeah. Is he going to come back with somebody else? Uh Uh-huh. Is Quentin the somebody else? Was he the cowboy? Mm-hmm. And then her assistant keeps saying he's not coming back. Portia is like trying to, I, I, you could either look at it as Portia is the, the maid or Quentin is the maid, like saying like, he's mm-hmm. not coming back, like you deserve better. And then it ends in suicide. So, and then they keep saying that, you know, she's a, she's a tragic Puccini uh, heroine. Right. And that's right. what Butterfly is. This is a Puccini opera. Right. So I don't know if they're suggesting that Tanya's going to kill herself. Or if they're going to suggest that Porsche is going to do that. I think he might be putting a twist on it that way. So uh, multiple things could be true. And as you were describing that, uh, it also makes me think of Daphne showing Harper the picture of her kids while she's talking about her trainer. Uh huh. So uh, possibly a child with another man, another partner. Yeah, the the child thing was insane, which I just I can't wait to talk about that later. Okay, well let's let's put a pin in that, and we'll 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 tie that back in when we get there. There's certainly remember uh, was it episode one or episode two where uh, Tanya walks out onto the balcony and she's like, "Oh, this is so beautiful. I wonder if anybody has ever jumped from here." Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of suicide, and then you've got Dominic with his lonely walk on the beach. So right. I think I think Mike is giving us plenty of 
mysteries to play with, lots of questions to play with. And then you have Portia with the pills, of course, in another uh, episode. So, yeah, no, there's and, and we even have the uh, fortune teller who said this path leads yes. to suicide yes. in another episode. Yes. So I don't think that we leave the season without somebody committing suicide. This is what I'm saying with Mike White's uh, construction of this season of television is that he's layered in so many things, the Testa di Moro, all of the artwork that we're seeing, Monica Vitti, this opera, that island. Like, how does he, what kind of mind is it that can bring in all of these details and elements to create this snow globe world where you shake it up and then you see all of this just stuff going on and see all these interconnections what's true and what's not true, what's going to play out and what's not going to play out. Uh, it's, it's really wild. It's really wild to, to uh, be podcasting about the show to try to take all this stuff apart. All right, David, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll get into our scene recap. And we're back. David, why don't you start us off with one of these characters? Sounds good. Yeah, we're going to keep with the character follow format. So let's talk about Valentina really quick. A pivotal, she has some pivotable, ah, there it is. Uh, She has some key scenes in this uh, uh, episode, but overall rather short. So we get a scene where Valentina greets Isabella and she exchanges looks with Rocco. And then later, she reassigns Rocco to the beach club, and we get introduced to Salvatore, who's going to replace Rocco on the front desk. And Isabella doesn't seem too pleased by all of this. You know, David, we thought that Albie was an incel at some point. Uh Uh-huh. We? I thought Albie was an incel at some point. (laughs) I think a lot of the internet did, too. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I don't think he is now. Uh-huh. But I think there is an incel in the White Lotus. Okay. That is Valentina. <laughs> you think she's capable of violence? Well, I don't think you need to be violent to be an incel. I think you just oh, need okay. to react poorly to right. rejection and think that you're owed something for being nice to someone. And I think that when Isabella finally does something to signal rejection, Valentina is going to act poorly because she reacts poorly to everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, uh, I, I think that Mike White is trying to show us here that uh-huh. incel behavior is, is possible by anybody. Okay. It's an interesting theory. I like it. I mean, I definitely agree with you that when Isabella ultimately rejects her, that it's not going to go well. Right. Now, I don't think Isabella dies. I think that uh, at the beginning, they said several guests were dead, right? Yeah. And she has a conversation with Rocco. When, you know, down at the, she comes down in a van and Rocco comes up to her and says, yeah, there's several bodies. Right. So I don't think that, uh, that that's going to happen. And I think that Rocco would have said, yeah, Isabella was one of the bodies right away. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's going to go well at all. And I think that Mike White is definitely painting Valentina as a character who is going to be unsympathetic in the end. She's cracking me up along the, all the way along the way, though. <laughs> the look she gave, she trades with Rocco is lovely. And then when she changes to looking so adoringly at Isabella, like it just, she's just beaming, like <laughs> the, you know, uh, it's just coming off of her in waves. 
and uh, you know the whole little line, a star for a star. I was just, just like, oh my god, so cringe, so cringe. That's what I'm saying, though. It's not going to go well. It does seem like she's a closeted lesbian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that will also be a factor of like she has no practice in relationships. Oh, clearly, yeah. She clearly she's overreacting to the situation um, because she doesn't have like I think you're right. She doesn't have practice at doing this. And so she's um she's just letting Amore, she's letting her lo- her passion feelings run away with her and her thinking mind doesn't have the tools necessary to, to like balance and control those emotions so that she's not a complete monster at work. I think too, this is an interesting point that, um, you know, in last uh, season, we had Armand using his position of power. And in this season, it's a woman now doing a similar thing, right? Maybe not with the, the crazy manic, uh, you know, drug fueled ex- escapades. But uh, again, position of power, utilizing a position of power to get something that you think you want. But in this case, it's a woman who's doing it as opposed to a man. Right. And it's still just as problematic, you know? And I think I said that in an earlier episode, like it'll still uh-huh. be sexual harassment if right. she continues down this path. Interesting that um, Harper's a HR lawyer as well. Well, that's about all I have to say about Valentina. You want to move on to Mia and Lucia? Yeah, so Mia and Lucia both have some other scenes that we're going to have Lucia and a whole section on Lucia and Albi. So these are just sort of their joint scenes. Mia and Lucia have breakfast and reflect on their lucky week. Lucia hatches a plan and Mia pitches Valentina. Dominic talks to Lucia about room charges. So... Lucia is fibbing a little bit on uh, this hotel bill. I mean, Dominic's going to have quite the long list when he checks out. <laughs> He's going to. I will say that I, given that Dominic... He stiffed her on the bill. Exactly. He was going to be, she was going to be with him for the week. He cut that off. So at least he's like playing along and letting her, you know, use the hotel under his name and, and charge some things. So like for somebody who's got some problematic behaviors this you know i don't know (laughs) this certainly doesn't excuse him but it's like i was like oh okay good he's not being a jerk about it do you think laura dern has access to his credit card at all can she look at his statement the divorce the divorce attorneys certainly are going to be right (laughs) right that's not going to go well for him in court no well it depends on whether they're separated or still yeah but it's not it's not going to go well (laughs) it's definitely evidence yeah, not going to go great for him. What do you think about this lucky week thing? Do you do you think that that is something that's going to just really come back negatively later? Oh, come on. It's Mike White. Of course it's going to come back <laughs> negatively later. Um right. and Mia's still in my, you know, is, is she's one of my picks for the for the Deadpool, so I it's I'm really excited to talk about this week's Deadpool as well because there's some interesting things going on. But I think they're feeling the euphoria, this euphoria of like, oh, hey, we're having breakfast, we're having a good night, I'm, I'm starting to see a guy that I really like, I'm the hooker with a heart of gold kind of thing, Mia's getting an opportunity to play the piano professionally, so yeah, I guess they really are feeling lucky, and, and yeah, Mike White is not going to let that slide. <laughs> well, we'll see how that goes. What else are they doing today? 
So Mia confronts Valentina again about playing the piano, and then Valentina relents. This was a hilarious scene. I loved it. She just called her straight out. She's like, you're gay, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she gets her right away, and, uh, you know, I'm a little gay, too, she says. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, Mia is just, like, weaponizing herself so mm-hmm. hard right now, and... Uh, yeah. Yeah, has there ever been a weapon that nobody used? It's uh, (laughs) (laughs) Now you're quoting Andor. I know, I know. It's not good. She is leaving herself incredibly vulnerable. And now the person who wants her out of this hotel the most has explicit reason to kick her out. How so? Well, because she just propositioned her for sex. But she let her play. She gave her... No, I know, but um, she could later be like, well, you did try to solicit prostitution. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think she will, but it's uh, I, I'm just saying Lu- Mia is just taking risk after risk after risk. Yes. Here, and she 100% is a agree. loose cannon and, and something's going to go terribly wrong with this. I think that your bet on the Deadpool is very safe here. Right. Yeah. She's got a, like she's feeling very euphoric. She's discovered that she can use sex to, to get what she wants and she's starting to get what she wants. Right. She's created this opportunity. <laughs> This this opportunity by giving the the piano player the wrong bill set of pill combinations and suddenly wait there's her there's her opening right I wonder if people are gonna ask for her now instead of Giuseppe yeah yeah and then Giuseppe is gonna be like was this on purpose did you poison me ooh that's a really ooh ooh good idea oh yeah what if well, she basically yeah. ruins his life he does seem pretty unsavory right or what if he ends up dead. Right? Like an accidental death. I mean, Giuseppe could end up dead uh, through some sort of accident. I don't think so after this episode. Okay. Because Valentina said he's going to be back Thursday. Like, he's in recovery right now. Yeah, but when he comes back and he gets mad at her for doing it on purpose, and then there's some sort of uh, tussle, and then he, you know, falls and hits his head or something like that. I think it's very possible that one of the two will die in some kind of altercation about this. Right. Right. So... I, I think that they are ramping up this tension of Mia is swooping in on this opportunity that she created by poisoning somebody, basically. Right. All right. Um, Mia kills it on the piano, at least I think so. And many of the other hotel guests are also moved. I know we talked about this a little bit. You weren't so thrilled, but... Um... When moon. <laughs> right. I, I won't do as well as Mia anyway, so it'll be fine. Right. She does display some flair. And a knack for the for the for the gig. It was just a very odd song for the night. I feel like the style, mm, mm-hmm. but because uh, it was a very like vo- vocal forward thing. And I've I've talked about my feelings about vocal based music in uh, dinners, but uh, it, it was very interesting. But it was a good song in general for the scene montage. So I'll forgive them for having a little bit of a a weird dinner song. And we should mention the montage a little bit because um, it, it was sort of hard to break that up because the, the, the song overlaps so much. Bert is certainly noticing uh, that Mia's playing. And then we've got a great close-up of the force or close-ups of the various foursomes, Harper and Cameron exchanging looks and Daphne and Ethan and what they're going through. So it was a beautiful montage with that music as well. Yeah, no, that was a very good way to show where everybody was at at that point. All right, let's switch focus and take uh, a walk with Portia and Jack. Portia is woken up by Tanya's phone call regarding their trip to Palermo while Jack sleeps. Do you have anything cute to wear? 
<laughs> He's wearing nothing. <laughs> yeah. At least it's 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 obviously warm in Italy. A lot of a lot of male booty in this episode. A lot. Yeah, and in the last episode too. You got you got Albie, you got Jack, yeah. you got uh Quentin, you got you yeah. got everybody. Everybody's involved. There's cheeks for everyone. So uh this is of the multiple uh very specific use of music in this episode. This was uh, another song by, uh, I believe it's Franco Battiato, but uh, Marta, our lorehound in Italy, did write in to say that it might be credited to DeAndre. So I'm not sure there, because I'm pretty sure when I wrote it down, it was Battiato that they listed in the uh, closed captioning credits. But this song, Amore Che... Vieni, amore che vai, love you come, love you go. Or it's also you, love who comes, love who goes. And here's your daily Italian lesson, David. It's C-H in Italian is K. It's a, it's a, hard, it's a hard K. Okay. So amore che vai. Che vai. You know, I, I slaughtered Tolkien. I'm, I might as well slaughter Italian as well. It's true. You know what? It's all right. It's a, we'll, we'll have our Galadriels. We'll have our uh, <laughs> whatever we need. I, that that one was my fault. So right, uh, yeah. No, let's 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 keep going. Um, so in our listener feedback, uh, Marta did uh, write in, and so we've got some more information about these songs at the end, and we'll get to that then. Portia, there's a really great scene too where uh, Portia steps out on her balcony in Mount Etna's in the background, mm-hmm. and there was just sort of a, a vibe that she had, and I was like, oh. Porsche's finally getting the trip that she was dreaming of, right? She's uh, having a great romance. She steps out on her balcony and hears this beautiful Italian scene with this, you know, you know, volcano in the background and this beautiful villa or hotel. And so I had this moment of like, oh, Porsche's like finally getting over herself and getting into life, right? She's not on her phone. She's not doom scrolling. So yeah, it was a, a cool little moment for her there. Good for her. For a while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so a little bit later, uh, as Portia's leaving her room, she and Albie cut ties. That was a very respectful breakup, I have uh-huh. to say. Anyone who will say Albie is an incel from this point on is not credible. Because th- this was just very, like, cool, didn't work out, have a nice life, goodbye. Perfect way to end it. And it was a little bit awkward and a little bit sad and, you know, you know, when you're trying to be nice and it's, it's like you're not sure exactly how to go with this. But they both were just like, yep, nope, cool, peace out. Yeah, no, I, I like the scene. I think it's very interesting how Mike White sort of baited us with that tangentially nice guy line. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's not that way. And I saw a comment on Reddit again today, where somebody said, I misinterpreted the wounded bird thing early on, because Mm. uh, the wounded bird thing made everybody go, oh, no, is he going for emotionally damaged women who are vulnerable? But now we're looking at it as, no, he has a savior complex. He wants Mm -hmm. to help people. Right. And he tells us earlier in the season that he's the peacemaker in the family, right? He's trying to fix things and and, uh, manage other people's issues to the point that they could get resolved he's so dead <laughs> he's gonna die so hard it's it's not gonna be good 
All right, later in uh, Palermo, Jack and Portia hit the streets. They dine and dash and generally have a good time. This was fun. I mean, this was exactly what Portia wanted, right? It's like an experience mm-hmm. you can't just recreate on Instagram. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, they had a great dinner of something that she didn't know what it was. And then finally, she- A little adventure, uh, a little heart-pounding adventure. Right, right. Getting right. chased and down the street. Exactly. Like, it was, it was a real experience with this guy. And yeah, no, I mean, she was just so overjoyed here, which is why it makes what happens later just such a hit. Did you catch that um, before they went to dinner, he calls her a slag? What did you call me? <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I don't know what that means, actually. It's a British um, slang term, and you can, it, it can be used in a couple of different ways. It can be a noun and a verb. So if you slag somebody off... You know, that could refer to like, oh, yeah, you know, he got slagged, you know, like if you're playing a video game and you killed another character or something Uh like that, right? You know, so there's that. You can also slag somebody off like you can talk, you can talk shit about your boss, you know, so you can slag off your boss. Or if you call somebody a slag, you're calling them a slut, basically. And it's not the nice version of slut. It's this, it's, it's a very, very... Uh, potent use of the term. And so when he calls her that, I was shocked. I was like, whoa, whoa wait, because usually it's a very negative thing. And he says it to her in a very joking way, and I don't know that she caught it. I don't think she did. I think she caught it as little as I did. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it basically refers to somebody who has um, a lot of sex and is, you know, lesser a lesser person. You know, you sort of looked down on them. Because they're getting around too much. Right. And she's not, right? She's not a she's not that, right? No, she's no, been no. very chaste up until now. No. Although I, I did have a little beef with her for leading my guy on and mm-hmm. just not being mature about it. But she eventually got there, so I'll forgive her. Um, but no, yeah, she's not a slag, as they said. Right. So back home, Jack says he needs to do something for his uncle, but tells her to keep her door unlocked. Dun dun dun. That was the moment where I knew I was right, to be honest with you. <laughs> when he says that, even before the scene. I have to go do something for my uncle. I was like, oh, uh-huh. yeah, I'm right. I'm right. so right. He is, a, he is a sex worker, and there's no getting around this. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it, it becomes very apparently clear earlier on, later on. I, I do think that it's interesting because he is just a working class guy from a, a working class area, and so... He's having a laugh running around in these ritzy places and on the boat and all, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, now we really see why. Right. How is, how is he his nephew? Like, they, they have to be really far distantly apart, socioeconomically speaking, uh, for him to invite him along. So, yeah, it, it, tra- it all tracks really nicely. It's a very interesting dynamic now, and I have no idea how they're going to resolve this with Portia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she could be in danger. You could have a good bet on her. Yeah, I think she is on my Deadpool, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm. I, we, listen, we're hedging all the bets today. <laughs> There's a, everybody's a target. It's true. Uh, I did see an interesting theory on Reddit too, where somebody said the people wearing stars are probably the safe ones. Interesting. Okay, a lot of people wearing stars throughout this. And we got to talk about oranges, but we'll do that towards the end so that if we don't want to spoil people necessarily, but we can talk about it in the Deadpool. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of clues here. 
I think yeah. that uh, a rewatch is going to be a lot of fun with this show because we're going to be like, oh, Mike White was signaling us here. Yeah, here, here's all the clues. Here they are standing out brightly and, and plainly is uh, easy to see. Right. All right, should we talk about uh, Lucia and Albie? My guy. We start off the episode with them uh, making love, and uh, it seems like <laughs> it's the best Albie has ever had. I love the use of the ocean wave scene there as well, a transition. I've seen this guy orgasm too many times already. <laughs> Wait, we've seen his O face a few too many times. Yep. Uh, and then Albie learns that Lucia is a sex worker. So this surprised me a lot because I thought that she was going to try to hide it. I thought mm-hmm. that she was playing the long game with him, but no, she's like, no, nah, I'm just going to do it up front. And maybe that was hedging a little bit because she knew that her, his father knew. And it was likely that he'd find out anyway, so she got ahead of it. But it really surprised me, and especially that she asked him for money, because I thought maybe she would say, like, oh, I like you, but I do this for right. money. But right. the fact that she was like, where's my money? I don't know if at that point she genuinely thought that he knew or if mm-hmm. that was her way of telling him. And that moment of awkwardness where she's like, uh, you know, the thing, right? And he's like, what? Like, plainly. Like, I, I really have no clue what you're talking about here. And she's like, you know, I'm uh, that. And the, the awkwardness and the pause and the uh, emotional roller coaster that must have been going on in Albie, because here he thought he was like playing, like he thought he actually won her straight. Right. Well, that's, that's the hurtful part for him. It's not that she's a sex worker. It's that that's the reason she slept with him. Yeah, and he thought she slept with him because he's a cool kid. Interestingly, there's another song here, and again, this one's credited to uh, Domenico Modungo, I think. Modugno? What a, I can't what a pronounce name. that. Yeah, and it's uh, Tu si na cosa grande. Tu si na cosa grande. You are a great thing for me, which is really a very good um, title for this scenes the scenes with them interesting yeah this scene in general really sets up a lot of interesting possibilities here mm-hmm. i'm looking forward to to seeing more but i have more thoughts as we get further into this plot line right later in the pool so we're gonna um i'm gonna talk about albie and his parent uh and his dad and his grandfather later but this is just with uh, lucia and albie mm-hmm. later in the pool albie tells lucia that he's got some money for her but that he'd feel weird if he were exploiting her in some way. And Lucia tells him that she honestly likes him. Do you believe her? Yes. And no. Yes and no. She's, got, she's hatched a plot. She's got a scheme. She's using him. He's using her as well. But I think she does honestly like him. But that doesn't supplant her plan, whatever that plan is. Yeah, I can get behind that. A little of both. Yeah. A little salt and pepper. Yeah, I think she wants to maybe use him to get to America. I think maybe. I think also, I think the long game maybe is, can you front me enough money to open a store so that I don't have to do this anymore and I could be free of Alessio? Okay. Well, you bet on the store. I'm going to bet on going to America. All right. Sounds good to me. Okay. Well, at drinks later... Uh, Lucia confesses that Cameron owes her money and that Alessio is threatening her. And then later, while having ice cream, they run into Alessio, who we think might be Alessio. 
No, that was Alessio because she actually said hi to him in the first episode. Right. And it's interesting that now he's coming back as the fake pimp. Do you, okay, I was going to ask you, do you think no, this that she actually pimp. has a pimp? All right, okay, cool. I'm with you on that. She specifically says in the first episode she works for herself. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that Alessio is a real pimp. I think he's either an ex or a friend, but he's not in charge of her. Do you think that she might have said to Alessio in the moment in the street, uh, you know, act a jerk or, or something like that? Like, she give him a little cue? No, no. Somebody, I think this was pre-planned because somebody actually translated the Italian and I didn't write it oh. down, but it was basically like an actual altercation that could have been either an ex or it could have, it was like, why aren't you responding to me? Uh-huh. Um, and then she was like, oh, what are you doing when he grabbed her? So this uh-huh. this could have been an actual uh, pimp and sex worker conversation. But um, I, I think this was just a pre-planned charade for Albie. Do you think that she told Alessio to like wait there or was it just coincidence and then she used it to further the story of the fake pimp? I don't know. I mean, they, you know, they can text. I'm sure that uh, she could uh-huh. have just oh, sent yeah, him a point. quick text like, hey, I'm going to be down the street. Can you uh, meet me here? Right. I mean, I think she's definitely using, I mean, she's got, you know, both the Cameron angle and Alessio angle to put herself in the position of needing a white knight. No, Albie is, this this is what he's been waiting for. He's going to be king feminist by the end of the season. And this is how he claims his throne is by saving a poor sex worker who needs his help. That's right, exactly. Under the constant thumb of of the pimp who's threatening her and grabbing her arm in public. And so, yeah, he's going to get himself killed. He's, he's meanwhile, so meanwhile, he's still, uh, you know, he's still in a, in a financial arrangement with her. Right. So, <laughs> well, that's unclear funny. by the end of the episode because he she's says like, he's you got don't the have money. to pay. I know yeah, but she says true. like, it's you true. don't have to pay a couple times. So I, willing to. I don't think, I don't know. I don't know what her plan is. It's very hard to read. Well, and then Albie's on this transitional period point here as well, right? He's like, oh, well, I'm Mr. Feminist. I want to pay you to have sex with you, but I don't want you to be exploitive. That's king feminist to you. King feminist. But at the same time, I don't want you to be in this exploited position. Well, like, well, you, you're dealing in some gray areas here, my friend. So it's okay if I sleep with you without paying. Mm-hmm. But not, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's messy. I get what he's saying. I get what he's saying. But I don't know. It's just it's just so sticky and he's just putting himself in a situation that's not good. Right. Well, later back at the hotel, Albie forgets to take off his socks. <laughs> he got so much <laughs> shit on Reddit about the socks. <laughs> it was just so I'm like, dude, dude. <laughs> he's such a child. Not great. Doesn't no. take off his socks. Ugh. Uh, yeah. Yuck. Twice, in, in fact, in, at, at two occasions in the episode. When he's talking to her in the, in the morning, um, when he learns that she's a sex worker, and then here at the end. Does he think that that's protection? I don't know, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty scary. Ugh. All right, so the DeGrasso's at breakfast, Albie asks his dad for money, and then later at lunch, Bert explains away his head wound. Albie calls out Bert and Dom for their past behaviors, and then they discuss the lives of escorts. Is Bert's injury real? Yes. Okay. So you think he's falling a lot because he's either sick or just getting towards the end of his life? It happens. There's, it's, um, 
it's a thing that that happens. Uh, it's a pattern that starts to occur, and once once one or two folds start happening, more and more start happening. And I think uh, he's definitely in that phase. And I think that also puts him in line for some Deadpool stuff. Even though you know our bet is locked, I think Mike is putting a target on everybody. Well, he can't be responsible for anything he says because he's concussed. That's exactly right. I think with uh, Albie here, <laughs> like the whole scenario of these three with Lucia sort of in the center here is pretty hilarious. And um, Albie's indignity at being asked for like, what do you need? Oh, you know, here's some money. Of course, you can have some money. But he's like, I need it for some stuff and some things, you know, like what? What? It's nothing. I need it, but it's, it's for nothing. I loved that whole little. <laughs> it was very humorous. That's so bad. So does Albie have access to like large quantities of money separate from his father? Because it seems like he can just access money if he goes to the bank. Yeah, no, I think he had to to talk to his dad. I don't think he's got that much money. He's an intern, right? Isn't that what he is? Didn't he say that's what his job was? I don't remember, but I believe you. He does have that vibe. Next, we see Dominic going for a long walk on the beach alone. We talk a lot in Andor about what they would have done in a cheaper show. Mm -hmm. In a cheaper show here, they would have played all by myself (laughs) as he walks on the beach. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but that was the vibe, is uh, Laura Dern's not going to take him back, and he misses Laura Dern, because who wouldn't? Yeah. He sees Laura Dern. He misses being a couple. He misses being, doing couple-y things, right? Right. Companionship. And, you know, there actually is this speech later with uh, the head of the gay mafia, Quentin, Mm-hmm. Where he says, I understand companionship and I understand bored afternoon sex, but I don't understand love. And I think that here we're seeing Dominic miss companionship, but not necessarily love. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And Dominic has separated sex from love. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because of his philandering. We can see that that's that evidence of of that. Right. And now he's starting to, I think, regret. I think he's going through a lot of regret and sadness. Uh, because he is feeling lonely, his uh, fa- you know, he's he's got complicated feelings towards his father, and he's watching his son go through something. Who's an adult now, right? Like he can't, he can't control. I mean, he could say, well, you know, I'm not going to give you two thousand euros, but at the same time, he can't tell him not to to go hang out with Lucia. He is funding his son's escapade with a sex worker, and he knows that, (laughs) and that must just be crushing, especially when it is entirely his fault, because Lucia wouldn't even be in the the hotel. Yeah. Unless he, unless Dominic invited her, it's Had incredible. Had invited him in the first place, and then put him on on their room, right? right. On putting on their on their reservation. I think it's a good segue um, to the next scene that we see where um, Dominic and uh, Bert look on as Albie and Lucia kiss at dinner, and then Dominic has a confrontational conversation with Bert. I, I the, there's a lovely comical moment here where uh, Bert sort of leans forward and sees Albie, and he gets this little mischievous smile on his face and sort of leans back. And I was just like, oh, just the little notes of comedy that Mike White is able to to um, paint in these scenes that we're dealing with some really uh, heavy topics and some awkward topics, but the way that he's able to humor, put these little bits of humor in it, really makes it a joy to deal with these things that are normally uncomfortable and awkward. 
Well, when I watched the scene, I thought to myself, this is why they cast F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> because yes, absolutely. no one could have sold me wholesome <laughs> in this scene like right. he did. Yes. I believed him that he loved his wife in this scene, even mm-hmm. as he's talking about his own experience with sex workers. Mm-hmm. I believe him that he loved his wife. And that is absolutely a product of his acting, how he gets like just a little bit moist in the eyes, mm-hmm. how he just smiles ever so slightly and just beams with pride in his marriage. And yet there is definitely some guilt behind it too, right? Because I mm-hmm. think that he does, he's not a stupid man. He does realize that his behavior did teach his son how to act this way too. Did you see the way that he was holding the knife and flashing that knife around as he was talking? The knife around? So, well, you know, they're at dinner, right? So he's got silverware in his hand. And as he's talking, he's using uh, a knife, a dinner knife, as um, kind of a conductor's uh, wand a little bit. He's sort of using it to punctuate points and to, you know, people who talk with their hands, right? Right. He's talking with his hands, but he's got a knife in one of his hands. Is that the pineapple knife this season? Is that what he kept, what he killed him with in season one? That was yeah, that was the murder weapon in season one. Okay, I don't maybe oh, you know I mean we have multiple deaths so we don't know. I just thought it was an interesting choice to actually have him. I mean it it could mean nothing, but I did think it was interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean especially if he's tripping everywhere, he might accidentally kill somebody with one of those knives. Yeah, there you go. What did you think of Dominic's accusation uh, towards his father? He's saying, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for me, but you normalized it. Well, Dominic needs years of therapy. And I think what a therapist would likely start telling him is, you may have learned this behavior, but now you're an adult and you're responsible for changing it. And so they're both a little right. Yeah. They're both a little right. Whereas Dominic mm-hmm. is correct to say, well, dad, you taught this to me and you made me feel like this was okay. But also... Bert's like, you're 50 years old, Dominic. When are you going to just figure out that you can do whatever you want? You don't have to live this way. Mm-hmm. And there is something strange about the way that Bert insists that his wife loved him and that his wife was happy and that Dominic insists that his mother was bitter. And it's part of like the different faces that we put on for different people. It's part of like, you know, how much in denial are, are these husbands about their spouses, mental right. health? Especially when you compare them to Ethan and uh, Daphne. Sorry, sorry, to Cameron and Daphne. Mm. Whereas they are both in denial oh. about each other mutually. Yeah, it's interesting. So here we have uh, Daphne and Cameron and in a very young stage. Uh, and then we see Bert, you know, very later, much on. Like, what does a life of philandering and, uh, and uh, lying to your spouse mean? get you in the end, right? It's not, I don't think that he's setting up a straight line equation, but it's an interesting uh, marker to see this young couple and uh, somebody else who uh, was not faithful and sort of where they ended up and Bert convincing himself that everything was fine. Yep. Yep. It's really interesting. I can't wait to see if they have more conversations between the two of them. They are underutilized in this season, aren't they? Some people have been saying that Michael Imperioni is not doing a lot of acting here. Yeah. Uh, He's just sort of playing a very flat version of himself, which I can see, but I also can see that that's what this role really needs. That's what he, I I don't think that he 
I don't think it's a challenging role. I'll put it that way. No, I think that as it goes on, he's becoming more detached. And I do think he plays that well on his face. And uh, the next scene where he tries to call Abby, um, we really do get that detachment, that dejection, that, um, that borderline depression. You know, I'll say, have you ever been around a Middle East Italian man, Italian-American man? Because uh, this is how they act. They, they, get okay. all, <laughs> they get a little smirk on their face when they have something to say with attitude. And other than mm-hmm. that, they can be a little dry sometimes. So it's, uh, I, I think that he's playing this role fine. And the, right. the call with Abby, good for Laura Dern for standing up for herself finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think we're seeing her this season. I think there was a hint in some interview that uh, she was coming back soon. But I, I think that that was just a fluke. Right. Okay, let's uh, swing over to the foursome. Haha, ha, swing. <laughs> Ethan wakes up and finds the condom and finally comes clean. Harper is disturbed. What? I just watched someone have sex with two hookers that were in my room <laughs> while I had Molly. While I was on Molly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she tried to kiss me. I'm not going to tell you that I kissed back a little bit, but uh, I just let them in and they just had sex on the bed and I hid it from you because nothing went wrong. Ethan really, really fucked up with this whole scenario. If he had just come clean right from the beginning and just said, look, some shit went down. I don't want to tell you everything because I don't want to get Cameron in trouble. But like, yeah, you know, we got drunk, we dropped some drugs, blah, blah, blah. But instead, the, the multiple, it's not the one lie or the two lies, it's the multiple lies. And until he was confronted with physical evidence, did he finally begrudgingly come clean? Like, he really is fucked up here. And he, I think he's fundamentally broken something in their relationship, because no matter how at odds they might have been with each other or annoyed with each other, they did have this honesty that they could rely on between the two of them. Well, he spent a full day gaslighting her, right? Yeah. Just like every time she brought it up, like, what? Nothing happened. What's wrong? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not great, man. It's just, I did say at the beginning, I think Ethan really is an incel. I don't know if he's an incel, but he sure, he certainly doesn't respect his wife very much. Yeah, they've, they've got issues. There's no doubt. But, you know, now that he's broken that trust bond, um, I don't know that their relationship's going to be repairable. And even this man who ostensibly is a liberal, caring man who's in an egalitarian marriage Mm -hmm. is still ready to protect the infidelity of another man. Ooh, that's a really good point. That is a really good point. Uh, I think that's something that Mike White is trying to say is like, look, even the good guys, quote unquote, are protecting shitty men. Right. At breakfast, the guys hide as Mia and Lucia pass by. They make a plan to go wine tasting. Harper throws a not-so-subtle hint. Peak comedy. Harper being unhinged (laughs) was absolutely amazing. I love Aubrey Plaza. You know that Mike White wrote this role for Aubrey Plaza. Like, he had her in mind as he wrote this. Oh, that's cool. All right. Yeah, so that is why he cast her, so that she can do this. Because she had some similar type comedy in Parks and Rec, and I think that he knew that. And he Mm -hmm. knew that she knew how to be unhinged as well as deadpan. And so this is where she really gets to shine, is this, like, <laughs> really sarcastic, hinting around, just being chaotic, uh, getting super drunk. Amazing, amazing scene. Super bitter. Like, let's get to Mo- Molly in rage. Like, it was like <laughs> whoa, like, that was a slap. She can make her eyes just bulge with rage. And uh, Cameron's like, what, what? 
you know, like he's he's not sure at first, like, was that just a weird offhand comment or is there something going on here? Oh, I think he knew right away. I think that he just was shocked that uh, Ethan had told her anything. I, I don't know that he's do you think? OK, so you, you think he, he cottoned on right away? I think yeah. he cottoned on a little bit later. I think he's a smart guy. Generally, I think that he is intelligent and, and understands things. Sure. like we talked about earlier in the series in the season that he picks up when Harper is taking digs at him. He's not somebody who's just like missing all these digs, whereas now she's throwing back some of that same shade that he threw out with, uh, oh, well, you know, some of us care about things or whatever it was. Mm hmm. And uh, really, really, really good scene. I think that everybody hates each other a little bit here, except Daphne. Yeah. Daphne's just living her best life. Daphne, but Daphne is paying attention to everything. Right. While she looks like she's oblivious to everything. Oh, no, I, I'm saying I think she understands everything that's going on. I just think that yeah. she holds no hate in her heart here. <laughs> Not until she murders her husband, but that's a that's another theory. I don't theory think she's gonna murder Deadpool. him. Look, Daphne won. We got to get to this later, but Daphne yeah. won. That's her. That's her philosophy, right? Yeah, we definitely we're let's let's uh, let's put a pin in that, and we'll come to it in just a little bit. While they drive to the winery, another song by Fabrizio De Andre plays, and that is Via del Campo, Way of the Field. And uh, we'll talk about that in the um, feedback section because it, that song has some specific meaning. Once they get to the winery, Cameron and Daphne make out and Harper starts to drink and begins to ask probing questions. Ian accuses Cameron of having mimetic desire. Ethan was shooting shots firing everything on all cylinders. Mm -hmm. He was ready to fight here. Boy, oh boy. I mean, he's probably at the end of his rope because of this uh, confrontation now with Harper that's clearly ongoing. Right. And he just is so pissed at at uh, Cameron. He has a lot of anger towards Cameron mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for what he sees as ruining his marriage here. Because had Cameron not left the condom wrapper, he could have hid this whole thing. Not to mention maybe a lot of leftover resentment for from their college days. Yeah. No, I think that this is a long time coming. And this is why I think that, you know, this was not in my original Deadpool, but I think uh -huh. that Ethan killing Cameron is a very real possibility at this point. Like if I were going to wow, pick one. Murder. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that if there was going to be one like intentional killing in this season, it is most likely to be Ethan to Cameron. Interesting. Harper, boy, that I was feeling really, I was squirming uh, when she's like asking all these questions. I was like, ooh. And then, you know, we'd cut over to Ethan and he's just like, what the F is going on here? She was going uh, big guns. She was ready to fight from the beginning of the day. <laughs> uh, I don't think she slept a wink the night before. I think you're, yeah, she, cause she was awake. She was laying there when uh, he went to the bathroom and she was um, ready for the, the conversation. Right. Like her eyes were closed, but I, but they opened so quickly when he got up and he got up very quietly that she must have been awake. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Old habits die hard. Whoa. That was like a shotgun blast. Harper is just out for blood here. We already talked a little bit about the mimetic desire, but I, I just to reemphasize that, I think definitely Cameron is the kind of guy who, no matter what it is, He's always going to try to assert some dominance in a sphere of influence or in social relationships, whether he really thinks that he's privileged and therefore 
that's how he acts, or whether he's coming out of uh, some place of insecurity or or lack, you know, or concern that he's not enough, and so that he has to over dominate. Regardless, it's very toxic behavior, and I'm sure he's done it all his life. And uh, especially now with the guys that he runs around with at work, who Daphne had talked about as being real monsters, like that is a bad trait to have in that sort of toxic stew of an environment of a workplace. Especially because it's very clear from this and then the Palazzo incident that Cameron is ruled by FOMO, like absolutely ruled by it. Yeah. And so that's what we're looking at between him and Cameron. I think it's two sides of the same coin here Mm -hmm. where he just is ruled by what is everybody else doing? He's ruled by Mm -hmm. what everybody else is experiencing. And why am I not experiencing that? And that's why I think that we there is no chance that we leave the season without Cameron at least trying to sleep with Harper. I don't know if Harper is going to be uh, receptive to that. She might be Mm -hmm. because of the revenge deal, but she also kind of hates him, too. So it's it's really... It's really a tricky situation. I honestly hope that she doesn't sleep with him because I think that's out of character. It'd be way out of character for her, yeah. Right, but um, I, I don't think it's necessarily out of the realm of possibility either. Right. And this whole thing is is exactly how Cameron feels about Ethan. He, he's like, I missed out on your, on your sale of your company, uh-huh, you know, things uh-huh. like that. Yeah. Yeah, really toxic friendship here. So the, while they're walking in the uh, vineyard, Cameron confronts Ethan. And Ethan brings up the condom wrapper. Man, you left a condom wrapper on my couch? Amateur. Amateur hour. He's like, what? What? Yeah, this is the guy who can never take responsibility for anything. I I really like that Ethan was standing up for himself in this point, and he was very clear and specific about it. So, like, that Cameron actually backed down. Clearly, Ethan had the right of it here and wasn't afraid to use that in the moment, even though it's a... (laughs) A kind of an effed up situation, like you're trying, to, you're talking about hiding your infidelities. At least within the microcosm of that uh, of that scenario, Cameron was way in the wrong, and I liked to see Ethan call him on it. Well, especially because Cameron's basically like, "Dude, you broke the bro code." It's like, "Dude, yeah. you broke the bro code. You're yeah. the one who disclosed yeah. this by leaving a condom wrapper." Yeah. On their way to dinner, Cameron confronts Lucia about the money. What do you think about? Cameron's financial straits. Oh, he has no money. I, this just mm. reinforces my theory that he runs a Ponzi scheme. Okay. I'm going to collect on some internet points with that one day, too. You, you wait and see. All right. Yeah, that was an interesting situation there. And uh, I, more for the white knight of Albi to come to the rescue on Lucia's part. Oh, Albi's going to die. Oh, it's going to be so bad. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying it. At dinner... The foursome continue their conversation. Cameron asks about Harper's history and feels her up under the table. Harper flirts with the waiter. Harper definitely thought about it for a minute before slapping him away. I'm going to say that. Mm -hmm. I do think that she is physically attracted to Cameron. Uh I think she is repulsed by his personality. And that's why he uh, will not succeed in this this effort. Mm Mm-hmm. Harper does deflect and still accomplish the same thing as trying to make uh, Ethan jealous a different way. I thought it was interesting too. Cameron, again, trying to uh, assert his dominance and destabilize other people. So he had been being grilled and put on the back foot all day long. And then this is his, he sees this as his shot to, um, to pay some back from what he'd been getting all day. Yeah. 
Cameron knows the game he's playing. Again, like I said, he's a smart guy. He knows what's happening. He's not like a fool in any of the situation. I think he is fooled about a different situation. But uh, as far as these interpersonal reactions, I think he very much knows how to read Harper. What do you think of uh, Harper's Italian? It sounded pretty good to me. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's good. She's a very educated person. She uh, yeah. seems to be worldly. So, uh, and especially because you know it seems like uh, she spends a lot of time in San Juan. I'm sure she has a lot of uh, experience speaking Spanish, uh, or at least exposure to Spanish. So uh, Spanish is not the same as Italian, but it does have a lot of the same kind of grammatical rules, things like that. So yeah, I'm sure it's not too far of a leap. I'm surprised that she was flirting so much with the waiter but uh i don't know she was just letting it all uh, all all hang out at this point i think well how drunk is she by this point you know yeah she's been drinking, drinking all day heavily wine day drink too yeah Oof, oh man headache I, tomorrow. I couldn't even i couldn't stay awake if i did that <laughs> no no i'd be way out i'd be <laughs> i'd already be back dinner no i'm sleeping this one off in my hotel room <laughs> During this, we also get another song by Fabrizio DeAndre, and it is, I'm not going to pronounce it, it's Prayer in January, whatever that is in Italian. Later, Harper tells Daphne that she, she thinks that something happened while they were away. Daphne advises her to get a trainer. What did you think of this heavy scene? I can't believe that there are people on the internet debating whether she meant to reveal that the trainer is the father of her children. Okay, why, why can't you believe that? Because it's obvious that that's what she meant. Right, okay, all right. <laughs> I was confused at first, but I had to think about it. Yeah, people are on the internet saying like, no, she was just trying to get uh, Harper's sympathy and change the subject by bringing her kids. And I was like, what are you talking no, about? No, 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 yeah. No, I, this is what I love about this show is that Mike White is smart. It, it trusts his audience enough that, the, that his audience is smart enough to put together what Harper's putting together here. Daphne is way too smart here. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that her whole point here is, well, whatever he did can't have been as bad as what I already did. <laughs> and that is pretty, whoo, like having a child out of wedlock and then passing that one off as your spouse's, that's, um, that is some deep level deception. We're back in House of the Dragon now. Seriously. It's, um, it's not great. And I, I get what Daphne's saying here. It's really, really sticky. And I think earlier in the season, Daphne says something, Cameron, like, I could, call, I could cut your balls off if I wanted to. Yes. Yep, this is yep. how she'd cut his balls off, is saying, well, your kids aren't even your kids. Oof, boy, boy. Uh, and here I was kind of rooting for Daphne. And now I'm like, whoa, like, this is... And, and I think uh, Aubrey Plaza, or um, uh, Harper, is also very taken aback she's like wait something this is uh, a lot more treacherous than i thought like here i thought cameron had a you know was out with a sex worker and you're showing me that you've had children with another man daphne is somebody who is much smarter than she tries to portray way way smarter very interesting character really excited to see where this one goes to all right, let's talk about uh, Tanya and Quentin and their escapades. At breakfast, Tanya talks with Portia about an annulment for her marriage, and she regrets not following through with the Maui plan. Shout out to Belinda. Yes. Big time callback to season one there. 
Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I mean, it, it was nice because you uh, you didn't really need to watch season one to get that, but it was mm-hmm. it was nice if you did. Right. Yeah. Uh, this this whole annulment thing, an annulment is an interesting thing because you have to basically say like the whole marriage was a sham. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just a divorce where you say the marriage didn't work out. You basically say it was entered into false pretenses or oh. it was never consummated. Or it, there's like a there's like different things that you have to do to qualify for annulment. It's basically okay. saying like the marriage never existed, so nobody gets anything from it. Oh. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that this is part of the Madam Butterfly thing, whereas Tanya is like the one who's going to have to be like, he's not coming back, bud. You know? Right. I, I'm still betting that Greg's going to be back. Yeah, I think so. I don't think they would have brought him back this season if he wasn't coming back. I have no idea how to process the fortune tellers. Uh, reading at this point because there's so much stuff going on on so many levels. I am lost uh, relative to that. I think a rewatch will be fun because we'll be able to take that and follow those threads through. Right. Right. Yeah. No, there's so many clues that we can follow on a rewatch and I'm I'm kind of excited more to watch the second time than I am this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's HBO will be very happy to hear that. You got to keep my sub another month, huh? Tanya and company head out on the yacht. Jack takes Portia on a tour. Quentin talks about his villa. So the villa, what do you think about this? I know you've brought in the uh, aristocrats with no money that uh, Cameron talked about earlier in the season. I'm on the camp of they are the gay mafia and they need money. Maybe maybe both can be true. Maybe they're poor. It's a poor aristocrat and he's in bed with the mafia to help get money. Right. A lot of possibilities here. Did you think um, that the yacht is legit? I had a thought that maybe this was a rental. Hmm. Yeah, it could be a rental. I mean, how how would she know? It's bloody expensive to maintain those things. I mean, right. you, you could afford to buy one, but to maintain it is a whole other thing. Not only the mechanics of it, but crew and moorage fees and all of that. That's that's a crazy amount of money. Whereas to me, it looked pretty. You know, maybe it's one that they bar. You know, they that they rent from time to time. But I don't know. That's a thought. That's a stray thought that I had. Yeah, no, I I didn't think about it, but you're probably right, especially if they have no money. So as the yacht arrives in Palermo, we hear a song, Spiritual, by Fabrizio de Andre, another one of these specific music cues that we've got. Tanya is jealous of Portia, and Jack confers with Quentin. Yeah, it seems like Portia's getting a bit of Jack anytime she can, and so is Quentin, (laughs) I guess. Yes, that's for sure. I did like how Tanya's very lucid in this moment. She was able to suss out quite easily uh, what was going on. And interesting, uh, later on, you know, we see her be cued by something else. So uh, I don't doubt that Tanya has some sort of supernatural sixth sense. Like she's, she's very attuned to things. She can hear things. She feels things. And when she's not muddled up in her own concerns and worries... She has very clear vision uh, and insight into other people and other situations. I think that it's interesting that Mike White has had Tanya be sort of out of her funk, like in a funk at the beginning of both seasons. Right. Where first from the death of her mother and now from the collapse of her marriage. And then each season he has her open up through different actors. Like she had Belinda in the first season getting her out of her funk. And now she has Quentin getting her out of her funk. Right. So a lot of parallels there. Again, I think that uh, Tanya is Moses going home, being found by uh, her uh, high-end gay friends. Oh, right. Tied into the painting that we saw in the last episode. 
And this is where the this is the first scene where we see Jack having some conspiratorial conversation with his quote unquote uncle. Uh, and I think that's the first scene where we get any sense that not first sense, but additional evidence that there's an unnatural relationship going on here. Right, right. I mean, I knew last episode just so uh, just so everybody's well. clear. <laughs> just yeah. so everybody's clear where I'm at. Uh, I'm 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 in a tub of internet points right now. <laughs> That's an image that I didn't need to have in my brain. <laughs> well, now you do. Congratulations. In Palermo, Jack complains about the weight of Tanya's luggage while everyone settles in. Tanya is relieved that it appears Quentin has money. Quentin complains about maintenance costs. They decide to see Madame Butterfly at the opera. So we talked about Madame Butterfly. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's very applicable. Quentin is really buttering up Tanya and then giving some really cryptic phrases as uh, as the episode goes on. I mean, she, mm-hmm. she's she's what a, a tragic Puccini heroine. Mm-hmm. Puccini, you know, a, a lot of his stuff has been adapted. Like this play, Madame Butterfly, was adapted to Miss Saigon, which is a highly problematic play that's been addressed a right. lot of times. But uh, Puccini's La Bohème was adapted as Rent, which was you know a very Oh, interesting. Uh, I didn't big know that. Gay, a play in the gay community. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, about the AIDS crisis and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Puccini is part of gay culture, uh, and mm-hmm. at least the adaptations. So uh, I, I thought it was a really good framing device for this episode. Two things I want to tag here. One, just sort of the opulence and the beauty that's going to um, be turned on its head later on. And then Jack's offhand comment about the weight of the luggage, about having it, you know, it's as heavy as, what do you have, a dead body in here? So it was another one of those little drops that, um, relating to bodies and death and these kinds of things. I wonder if he's going to be on the chopping block. At the opera, Tanya is amazed by the beauty of the opera house. Tanya waves hello to the Queen of Sicily. (laughs) Tanya and Quentin are moved to tears. That was a mean little joke, but it was hilarious to watch. Uh, just because how do you even answer that? You know, <laughs> is that the Queen of Sicily? And he just goes. I think he pauses a second. He's like, "How do I respond to that?" And then he exactly. just goes, "Yes, I want to enjoy my opera. I don't want to explain the politics of Sicily to you. I don't want to explain even know who that those Italy are. is a democracy. <laughs> and uh, I'm just gonna let you believe what you want." You could see it. Res- I mean, brilliant acting by Tom Hollander here. He's, like you could see the wave uh, of of thought go across his face, and then he just sort of cracks that little smile and says, "Yes, <laughs> it was beautiful." <laughs> yeah, Tanya is back in full force, uh, making us laugh all the time. And the rest of the crew all are sort of smirking at the joke as well. If you see the scene in entirety, everybody else in their little cadre is uh, laughing at Tanya's expense. Of course, they got to have fun. Back at the villa, Tanya says she can relate to Seppuku. Quentin confesses his one love affair, and Quentin then asks Tanya if she would die for beauty. Seppuku is a really brutal practice. Mm-hmm. It is literally having a ritual suicide where you cut your guts out to save your family's honor. And uh, it's really a brutal thing for Tanya to just casually say she could relate to it. I mean, yeah. come on. And that's how the person dies. That's how the woman dies in uh, Madame Butterfly. Right. So, yeah, Ugh. it was, that made me cringe quite a bit. Yeah, Quentin, was he just reciting the plot of Brokeback Mountain or was this a real thing? 
I was going to ask. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. Because it was, um, I would not put it past Mike White to play Quentin's character in in that kind of way. Uh, And for Quentin to be clever enough to pass that off of as one of his own true stories. Right. Right. Especially after the Queen of Sicily thing. Like we, he's in, he has it in him to lie for a fun joke. Yeah. Yeah. Very casually. Or is Greg the cowboy? Could be. I, I, I can't, I don't know. It's, there's, there's too many threads. I can't, uh, I can't track them all. I do think that in this episode, you know, Mike White is dropping one of those thesis statements again. And I think it's all in this conversation here about beauty and to die for beauty, to live for beauty. Um, I don't know how to process everything that they were talking about in here. Uh, if somebody's got a good take on this, I would love to hear it. But I, I think that there's some Mike has put some sort of nugget of gold in this conversation. It is a really interesting scene. This whole die for beauty thing. It reminds me yeah. of the island that he told Tanya about in a yeah, previous episode. Yeah. Right. I'm wondering if they're involved with a murder for hire thing or if they're mm-hmm. maybe if they're hired basically to drive her to suicide. You know, it's uh, he, maybe- it's weird because he there's there's definite hints of like of like trying to drive her towards a suicidal thing. But then, yeah, like, would they straight up murder her or like, how are they going to get her money? They don't even have how, how would they write her in themselves? How would they get her money if they killed her? Like, there's no legal way for that to happen. I guess the theory is that Greg hired her and he'll split it with them. But at the same time, they have a prenup and... Uh, I, I remember Tanya said survivor benefits. Well, maybe, but a prenup can probably get out of that too. And we have no idea what this prenup is. I know Tanya said, "Oh, I'll get rid of it if you want." And then right now she's talking about an annulment. But also, Greg said, "No, we'll talk about that when I get back." Yeah. So the prenup is still in effect as of right now. I don't know how they are going to scam her out of her money, but like, it definitely feels like there's scamming going on here. Right now, the mafia since this is the gay mafia, could go and forge some signatures, maybe, get, get some things going and uh, get the prenup away. Um, but I don't know how much that would hold up in a U.S. court. It sounds like Tanya's got some lawyer, you know, like that would be very tough. That would be a very long game to get that out legally. Right. So, right. Uh, I, I mean, it would be easier to, like, get her to buy into the villas or something like that. But who is Tanya's heir? We don't know. If it's not Greg. Yeah. She doesn't seem to have family. No. Is it Portia? No, no, no. I don't think she thinks that much of, of Portia. No, I don't think so either. It would be nice if it was Belinda, but it's not that her either. All right. Later in the evening, Tanya is woken up by strange noises. She wanders the hallways like a ghost and spies Jack and Quentin. This was uh, this was the scene that really uh, made my cast register go cha-ching. <laughs> it was... Uh, it was certainly expected, and I saw a thing on Reddit where people were like, oh, it's unrealistic for her to be snooping and following sex noises. I'm like, is it? Tanya's like the weirdest person in the world. Of yeah, course, she'd just follow yeah. anything and go anywhere right. and not have any personal boundaries. Well, this is what I'm saying, that she's got some sort of supernatural spidey senses, right? She's She can pick up on the vibrations or you know has exceptional hearing. like, um, And she gets into these sort of weird, moody states where she's sort of moved by the spirits, as it were. You know, that's right. how she would dis- describe it. I loved how they turned what was a beautiful and opulent uh, villa into a very an inferno, right? We start with a fireplace scene. 
we get, I forget what that technique is called where you're pulling the camera back and zooming at the same time. So everything's sort of distorting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool one. And, uh, it really made the whole place go from, from beautiful and opulent to like very, uh, intense and scary and, and, uh, boiling over, uh, which really set tonally the scene up for, uh, Jack and Quentin. I wonder how Tanya is going to handle this though. Is she going to go to Portia and tell her? Is she going to hint at it? Is she going to just try to dissuade her from being there? Is she going to try to leave the villa? I just don't know. Is there anything... I mean, there's no ethical obligation here, right? Well, there might be a moral obligation. Sure. But I, but not legally. Like, she doesn't have to tell him that... Uh, she doesn't have to tell Portia that, that Jack is sleeping with Quentin. But, I mean... I would if I found out, you know, somebody that worked for me was maybe not work for me, but somebody I was close with ostensibly was being cheated on. But I, you know, I'm not Tanya. Right. And does Tanya have I mean, like, it may be creepy and weird, but like, she's never asked. It was never it's not really her business. Right. I mean, it could be we're making it very sinister because Mike White is giving us a very sinister, you know, sinister trappings for this whole thing. But two consenting adults, right? We don't know the relationship between Jack. I mean, I guess the one lie would be that he's his nephew, but that's, that could be quite, kind of a little white lie. Well, it's clearly a euphemism after this, so. Right. I don't know. I don't know how Tanya's going to feel and, and how Portia's going to feel. It's a, it's a really tricky situation. I mean, I feel like if anything would drive Portia towards suicide, it would be the one real experience I had was fake. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think she's. I, I'm not worried about Tanya committing suicide here. I mean, she Poor may shy, have man. some. Oh right. Oh okay. I got you. Yeah. I, I. I'm. I'm. I feel like Tanya's got some good plot armor. So I. I I'm not ready for her to exit. No, I think she's going to be a recurring character on season three too. Yeah. All right. This is the last time we have one of these uh, very specific songs uh, as part of the show, and this is La. Stagione del tuo amore, The Season of Your Love, another by Fabrizio Deandre. All right, David, why don't we take a quick break? And when we get back, we'll check in with our bets on the Deadpool. And we're back. David, how are you feeling on your bets this week? Oh, boy, there's so much going on. It's, it's kind of tough. I still think Mia's a, a good candidate, and Greg is just an X factor here. As we were talking earlier in the episode, though, I think Mike has put a lot of targets on a lot of backs. Obviously, with Bert and his falling, we have a potential uh, physical confrontation between Albie and Cameron. Daphne well, may well have murder in her heart. Uh, we certainly don't know what Quentin and the gay mafia uh, are about, but there is certainly a sense of danger pervading there. And yeah, as we said, we have no idea how to interpret what the fortune teller said, but there are certainly more than enough circumstances that could lead to intentional as well as accidental death happening here. Yeah. So it was pointed out that there are some Godfather references that are weaving their way through this episode. Uh-huh. And one of the things about the Godfather is like if a character appears with oranges 
uh, that it somehow marks their death. Now, I'm, I'm not deep on that uh, theory. I'm not that much of a Godfather stand to like have all that background knowledge. You know, I've seen the films and, you know, okay, great, you know, but I'm not, I don't study the, that closely. So there's the one scene with Dominic when he tries to call Abby and there's a bowl of oranges that are behind him. And so uh, some people have been calling that out as a specific scene. But there is another scene where there is a sort of an orange grove behind Quentin and Tanya as they're having a conversation in his drawing room and she offers her a cigarette. And when they do that, um, they pan back and the other guys in their group, a couple of the other guys can be seen in the background out on the sort of patio. And there's clearly an orange tree in that shot. Mm. Center frame, vertically in the middle to the top of the frame. And it's a tree full of oranges. Hmm. Now, but so who is that most close to? Um, neither. It's pretty much right in the middle. Ugh. The and Mike White. Come on, man. Quentin is looking towards us. And we're sort of three quarter. We're, uh, we're sort of on the back, uh, back angle shot of Tanya. Well, that leaves me with a million theories and none. <laughs> right? That's, that's what's happening in this. Okay, we've got one piece of listener feedback this oh, week. Oh, I didn't give my Deadpool. Oh, sorry. I thought you... Hold on there. All right. All Hold easy on there. there. Easy there, big fella. Hold on there. Back up. All right, so for my Deadpool stuff, quick check-in. I think that Ethan is a less likely candidate now. Okay. I think that he, you know, he's possible on the suicide route. More likely will be the murderer, I think. I think he is more likely to murder Cameron than he is to die himself. Okay. But uh, so I'm checking in on that. On Portia, I think certainly closer on the suicide route after this episode. I uh-huh. think that she's going to be shattered by this Jack news. Especially, you know, she w- she said, oh, he's not non-binary about Albie. So now is she going to be bothered that this is not a straight, hetero- you know, a heterosexual uh, man? Mm-hmm. Or, or at least like somebody who's willing to have sex with other men. Like I don't know, I don't know if this translates to any homophobia uh, or anything like that. So very interesting. Very interested to see how that develops. And lastly, Greg, I, I feel less confident about it now. I think he's more likely to be on the nefarious side than the dead side. So I'm not feeling uh, great about my bets this week, but it's all right okay. because I had some consolation internet points today. Well, yeah, you you're you've had a good track record, so I wouldn't put it past you. We'll see. We'll see. All right, David, we've got just a little bit of listener feedback. So, what do you have for me? We've got our lorehound in Italy, Marta. She wrote in uh, to give us some insights into the music that we have in this episode. Uh, Marta says, "Hey guys, someone must really like DeAndre's music because we had so many of his songs in this episode." Apparently, there were two of his songs in episode as, episode one as, as well. So she says about uh, Amore che vieni, vieni, Amore che vai, you love who comes, love who goes. And she says, we hear these lyrics while everyone is getting up. Those days wasted running after the wind. One of these days, you will remember them. You love that flees to me, you'll return. And you who with eyes of a different color Tell me the same words of love. In a month, in a year, you'll have forgotten them. You love who comes to me, love who goes away. I don't know if that means anything. 
Yeah, I'm not sure how to process this one either. I think that's just uh, a nice song. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very striking song for sure. The next one is Via del Campo or, or the Campo Alley. And she says, we hear this briefly when the foursome is driving to the winery. It's one of the most famous songs of um, this particular artist. And it's about a prostitute who works in the alley of the title. She says, uh, she translates Via del Campo, that's a uh, word for a sex worker, with big leaf-colored eyes. If you desire to love her, you just need to take her hand. Love and laugh. If love answers, cry hard if it doesn't hear you. From diamonds, nothing is born. From manure, flowers are born. <laughs> Yikes. This seems to me more of an Albi Lucia reference, even though while it's playing while um, the foursome are driving to the winery. I wonder if it's like Harper's finally coming out of her shell because she's had enough. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Then we have uh, Spiritual. We hear this when Tanya and Portia on the, are on the boat to Palermo. Oh Lord of heaven, if you want me, if you want to love me, come down from the stars and come search for me. The keys to heaven, I don't want to steal from you, but a moment of joy you can give me. Without you, I don't know where to go anymore, like a blind fly that no longer knows how to fly. And if you bestow on us tears and laughter, we here on earth have not shared it. Oh Lord of heaven, if you search for me in the fields of corn, you will find me. Oof, I, I think these are all going to be things that are going to come uh, around and to be useful on a second watch. Because this is really obscure stuff. Yeah, I, I'm just wondering how much of this is just they like the songs and they're, you know, they, they're uh, fitting the mood of Sicily or if it's actually them telling us something with it. So here's one that might have some more gravity to it. This is the one, uh, January Prayer. Uh, Marta points out that we hear this song in episode one when Cameron changes his clothes in Harper's room. In this episode, the music starts when Cameron starts to touch her leg at the dinner table. Then we hear these lyrics, and the camera, the camera is now on Ethan. May blossoms adorn his pathway, Lord, when to you his spirit and to the world his skin he'll have to hand back. When he comes to your heaven there, where in broad daylight the stars shine bright. She goes on to say, if you remember, this song is about someone who committed suicide, so who knows if they're trying to tell us something about Ethan. This is evidence for your theory. For my theory that Ethan's going to kill himself? Yeah, or that Ethan's going to die. Yeah, yeah, it is. I'm, I still feel weak about it today, but you know what? Okay. My, my bet is locked in, so I can't back out now. Well, take heart. Marta has your back here on this one. So <laughs> Thanks, Marta. And then the last one, The Season of Your Love. We hear this song over the closing credits. The season of your love is no longer spring, but in the days of your autumn, you have the sweetness of the evening. If one morning in your hair you find a bit of snow in the garden of your love, I'll come to pick up the snowdrop. Time passes over time. It seems to run like the wind, but time is in no hurry. Hmm. So it seems more of a general atmospheric type of thing yeah. rather than specific. It's hard to say. Yeah, I can't get anything out of that. Yeah. She says, and that's it. I hope you find these translations useful. I'm not sure they're trying to tell us something with these lyrics, but if you're an Italian speaker, you cannot ignore them. So she's saying that they're like front and center if you are a, an Italian speaker. Okay. 
She says, looking forward to hear the thoughts. Ciao, Marta. Marta, Marta, Marta. Thank you so much. I wish we were somewhere together. We could buy you a spritz and uh, cheers to you because this adds uh, so much to our coverage. And uh, yeah, you're you're living up to your honorary Lorehound um, uh, status. Next time, you got to translate Lorehound into Italian for us so so that we can give you a badge. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, David. Time to close out the show. So why don't we do some quick program reminders? Uh, again, you can get all of these episodes ad-free and early on Patreon for as little as $3. Shout out to our lore master of the month, Samarchin, who's in the highest tier, uh, which we're very flattered for. Uh, and you get a shout out if you're in that tier. This weekend, we're going to have the Andor season wrap dropping on Saturday. Also in December, we have uh, Tales of the Jedi for more Star Wars. We have an interview coming out with an author of Origins of the Wheel of Time about that show and that book. Check out our This Month on the Lorehounds uh, coming out tomorrow if you want to hear more of what we're doing. But otherwise, we will see you next week. The White Lotus Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can get ad-free and early versions of these episodes at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Connect with us on Twitter at the Lorehounds or by email at whitelotus at thelorehounds.com. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.